This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Good morning. It's my privilege this morning to introduce our speaker. Um, as many of you are aware, we have had an intensive for, from the Knox Theological Seminary, which many of our seminary students go. Uh, Dr. Robbie Kraus um, was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, but he eventually found his way to Hillsdale College in Michigan, where he studied history and the classics. He eventually would get his doctorate degree from Wheaton College and is now an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. It's one of the conservative Presbyterian churches, and we're very thankful to have him with us. We had a blessing sitting in a class talking about the theology of worship. Uh, Robbie is married to Becky, and they have three daughters. And so I know his time away from them, he's eager to get back home and be with his family. But uh, I have to say that he did us a great favor because he brought us the warmer weather. And so uh, I know he was thankful that it wasn't horribly cold or snowy. Um, if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to open them to Luke 20. Uh, verse 19 is where we begin for our scripture reading. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies to pretend to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveled at his answer. They became silent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a day in which we can gather in your house, a day in which we can be reminded of your greatness and sit at your feet as we hear from your word. We're thankful, Lord, for the way in which you care for your people. Lord, you've given us everything we need. You are a perfect father. We're thankful, Lord, especially for the gift of your own son who came and took on human flesh to die for sinners such as us. We're thankful for Jesus and his act of obedience in every respect of the law. We're thankful that he willingly went to a cross that he did not deserve to take our sin, our shame, our guilt, for it to be nailed there. And Father, we are thankful that you received that offering on our behalf and applied the righteousness of Christ to us while our sin was applied to him. We're thankful for the proof of our 
justification in the empty tomb. We're thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell, to convict, to empower. Lord, as we pray each and every week, we pray that we would be changed. We pray that we would be changed as we sit under the hearing and the preaching of your word. We pray that our eyes would be open, our ears unblocked, our hearts softened. God, we pray that we would be transformed more and more into the image of your beloved Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the promise, Lord, that you've given that your word never returns void. We pray now, Lord, for our speaker. We pray for Robbie as he comes to preach. We pray that you would fill his mouth with your words. Pray, Lord, that you would bless him as he communicates the very things that he has prepared and you've laid upon his heart. Lord, may he not say anything more nor less than you've given him to say, but may he be faithful to the entirety of your word. God, we pray over our congregation. We pray for those who are struggling. We know there are many who are uh, battling physical health, uh, many who are uh, facing treatments regarding cancer. God, we pray uh, for healing. We know that you are the great physician. And so, Lord, we lay those concerns before you. We pray for those who are struggling emotionally. As many have lost loved ones, others have found just the season of winter to be uh, exceptionally difficult, where we pray that you would comfort them and strengthen them and help them, Lord, to find their joy in you. We pray for those who are battling spiritually. We know that temptation is real. We know that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so, God, we pray that we would be wearing the armor of God, that we would be faithful in battling sin, Lord, that our eyes would be turned to Jesus and in him we'd find great delight. Lord, we pray that you would do for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness, the grace, the mercy, and the love that you provide. And thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather together in this place as your people hearing from you. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And God's people said... Thank you, Aaron, and uh, it is great to be here. We really appreciate this church at Knox, and I really appreciate your hospitality and welcome, just the way that you have invested, particularly in these young men that you're raising up as pastors, and uh, it's been great uh, to be here this weekend. Death and taxes. Death and taxes. It's said that nothing in life is uh, certain except death and taxes, and as we heard the passage that was just read, there's the taxes. I think next week you'll be talking about death, so there it goes, death and taxes. Uh, the comedian Will Rogers once quipped, uh, the difference between death and taxes, though, is that every time Congress meets, death doesn't get worse. <laughs> One of my favorites from this topic is a Snoopy cartoon where Snoopy is there on his uh, typewriter on his house, and he's typing out a letter that says, Dear IRS, I am writing to cancel my subscription. Please remove me from your mailing list. <clears throat> well, it's going to be tax season soon, so it's appropriate that our passage speaks to this. Uh, but of course, it'd be very shallow to think that really the whole of this passage is simply or only about taxes. As we'll see, this question is given to Jesus to trap him, as we heard. Uh, but it says something more about Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God, of God's rule of God's authority, and especially about our allegiances and responsibilities in life. 
you know, this question came to Jesus because at that time people were questioning and wondering how to deal with all of the different allegiances in their life. Uh, you know, I have allegiance to God and God's people, but I'm also in a land that's ruled by a political ruler. And we often think of the same question. How do I navigate my life as a Christian in this world? I'm an American. I live in a state. I live in a city. I have different laws over me, but I also have the law of God on my life. How do I navigate all of these responsibilities, these allegiances? Maybe you think about the same thing as well. If you're a spouse, a parent, taking care of your own parents, perhaps, all of the different things that weigh on us, how do we balance, how do we deal with these allegiances? See, that's exactly why we need this teaching of Christ today. Just as they needed it then, we need it today again. How do we deal with the allegiances, we might say, of our life? Well, our passage today comes in the last week of Jesus' life. I think you've been going through Luke. Jesus has been looking toward Jerusalem and that Passover time, and now he's here. Uh, he's come into the city. Uh, he's already had his run-in with the Jerusalem leadership. Uh, they've heard of this wandering prophet and teacher, and they're ready to put a stop to this. You know, Jesus, seen at the temple, you probably remember brandishing a whip, driving out the money changers, has already caused controversy. And what that all does is set us up for a confrontation. Jesus and the authorities of Jerusalem. There's a confrontation. There's a clash. And you might think of it this way. It's a clash over different visions for God's kingdom. How does God's kingdom come? How does God's reign on earth come and be extended here? This is a clash of that vision. So everything in these discussions with the Jerusalem leadership that we looked at uh, is kind of framed by a question from, I think it was last week. They ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? You know, last week, I think we heard that uh, Jesus gave the parable of the wicked tenants in response to that. That only upped the controversy. And that brings us then to our passage today. As you look at the passage there, your scriptures can be outlined in pretty simple three sections. Uh, we're going to look at the lead up to the question to Jesus, sort of all the lead up there, and then the question itself, and then Jesus' response, his answer to their question. We're immediately told that the Jew Jerusalem leadership, the scribes, the chief priests, are ready to arrest Jesus that very hour. They knew when he told that parable of the wicked tenants that he's talking about them. They're the ones who are hoarding God's fruit, not giving God his tribute that's due him. So what's stopping them from doing this to Jesus? Well, Luke tells us. He says they're afraid of the people. They're people pleasers. The way they understand it, their authority is not really ordained by God, but it's at the whim of the people. People they despise, by the way. Isn't that often how it happens in politics? You know you get your authority from the people that you govern, but you hate them. That's often how it is, and this is what it seems for the Jerusalem leaders as well. So they fear the people. They want to please the people. So the way around this is to get Jesus in a predicament, to trap Jesus in his own words. Verse 20, look at it there. So they watched him, sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. 
Now, notice with me all of this talk about authority and rule. As I said before, this whole passage is about authority, about rule. They even flatter Jesus to set him up for the question. These really are good politicians, aren't they? All of this is dripping with irony. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Stop there for a second. Uh, If they're saying that truthfully, they're basically selling the farm to Jesus because he already has been exposing them. And they say, oh, but you do speak rightly. Well, but Jesus has been speaking rightly about them. But of course, it is true, even though they don't mean it. Jesus is a teacher who speaks rightly, who speaks the truth. As they say in that last part of their buttering him up, they say, you truly teach the way of God. What an interesting phrase, because Jesus is the way of God, and he has been teaching the way of God truthfully. He has shown the way. He is the way. But notice, too, what they say in the middle of all their flattery setting this up. You show no partiality. Isn't that interesting? Why would they say this? This is actually the important part of their trap to Jesus. And as we'll see in a second, they're hoping that Jesus will continue this habit of not showing partiality. They want Jesus to speak his mind regardless of the consequences because they've got some consequences in mind. But do you see what they're saying about Jesus? Jesus isn't a people pleaser. That's what it means to not show partiality. In other words, Jesus doesn't care a rip if he might offend somebody, if he has to speak the truth. And that's what Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. Jesus isn't concerned with meeting felt needs, making everybody feel good. Jesus speaks encouraging words, but he does so because it's truthful. That's what matters. They're saying this in jest, sort of buttering him up, but it's true. They couldn't get away with it if it didn't have some basis in reality. They know that Jesus has been teaching with power and authority, that he speaks his mind, that he speaks the truth. But what's especially telling is that this direct contrast that what's said about them. Remember what Luke had just said about them? They feared the people. They do show partiality, actually. They only say the kinds of things that will make people like them. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is sincere, as we heard. They wanted to hand Jesus over to somebody else's authority and jurisdiction. Jesus spoke on his own authority without regard of what that might do to him. Uh, What a way to set up a question. We've got to understand all of this, I think, to understand the question they asked Jesus. It's not a sincere question. As we heard, they are pretending to be sincere. They don't really care about the answer to the question. In other words, they're not really hoping for an answer that they might learn and understand from Jesus that doesn't matter to them. It's a trap. So the question we need to ask is, what makes this question a trap? We need to see this question, uh, as a colleague of mine said, as a question like, when do, uh, uh, did you stop beating your wife? It's one of those kinds of questions. It's a loaded question that if you say yes or no, you're going to get in trouble to that question either way. So Jesus, uh, how will Jesus get in trouble to this particular question that they ask? Well, if he says no to this question, should we give tribute or tax to Caesar uh, that it isn't lawful? Then Jesus is going to get in trouble with the authorities over him. Jesus says yes to the question uh, that giving tax to Caesar is lawful. Uh, Then he will be in trouble with some of his Jewish followers. He'll be seen as a sellout 
to Rome, that he isn't truly following and leading God's people who are suffering under oppression. We'll explain in a second that uh, Roman taxation, I mean all taxation, but in particular Roman taxation was deeply unpopular with the common people of that day. In other words, in this question, Jesus is going to have to offend someone. And the leaders want to exploit that to undermine Jesus, his credibility, his popularity, his leadership in the people right now. Uh, the leaders know that Jesus doesn't mind offending. It's an important worth, uh, point worth thinking about, about our Savior. Uh, but they hope that he does, and that he does so, and then loses credibility. In fact, what's interesting is you can see that the way the Jewish leaders think he will answer, what do they think he will answer? Well, I just read it. Luke says they intended to catch him and so deliver him up to the Roman governor. In other words, they're expecting a no answer, that no taxation to Caesar isn't lawful. They want Jesus to give a no answer, and that's what they expect. It might be that they expect that because other people who had been claiming to be Messiah at that time often did oppose the tax to Rome. But it's also the case that they must have seen something in Jesus teaching that they would think that he might say no. You know, sometimes we think, oh, Jesus didn't care about politics at all. You know, there's one ad campaign that you might have seen that's been running it. Jesus is fed up with politics, too. He gets us. Well, maybe. But I think Jesus is often more political than we give him credit for. It's just not the politics that we might expect. Well, that's the setup to the question. But Jesus does say something before giving an answer. Interestingly, Jesus first asked, show me a denarius. And he says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? I mean to ask, why does Jesus, Jesus do this? Uh, it's important to his answer. In other words, this isn't a throwaway line. He's not stalling for time as he thinks about the question. It's not that Jesus doesn't know the answer to this question. Does Jesus not know whose inscription and image is on this denarius? You know, the denarius is a common coin. It was equivalent to something like a day's labor, standard coin of the day. It's not that he doesn't know the answer, but he wants them to answer it. He wants them to think about what they're asking. He's going to lead them by their own words to the answer. So why does Jesus do this? Well, it helps to know what a Roman denarius looked like and what they're staring at as they hand it to Jesus. I think there it is on the screen. Uh, on one side of this denarius reads Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, it reads Pontifex Maximus. Remember your Latin, high priest. Did you hear that? On one side, it says son of God. On the other side, high priest. Think about the layers to this scene. At the very bottom layer is that simply Paying taxes is never fun, no matter who you are, no matter who you're paying it to. But this is a tax from a foreign government that's occupying your land. So this tax is a sense of remind, a reminder always that you are not free. You are not self-governing as a people. But it's exacerbated by the fact that this is God's chosen people. People who were liberated from Egypt in Exodus, their very nature of who they are is that God has freed them to be his people, that they've given, God has given them a king from the house of David whom they no longer have currently. Uh, you know, by Jesus' day, there had actually been several big rebellions, tax rebellions about this very thing. 
about taxes being paid to Rome. Some Jews simply considered the very image of Caesar on this coin itself to be blasphemous. Uh, images is something that uh, the Lord restricted and kept uh, a close hold on in, in the Old Testament. And this depicts the emperor wearing a crown, a crown, a wreath crown, a symbol of victory on his head. And there, if you remember on the back, is the goddess Peace, Pax Romana. Do you remember Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome? Well, the lady there on the right side is the goddess Peace. She has a scepter and an olive branch in her hand. Blasphemous to Jews that they would put these things on their coins and then make them pay to Rome these very things. Um, in, in Jesus' day, there's actually one Jew writing that described these very coins as portable idols that they had to carry around. It's like I have to carry around idols in my pocket of these images of a pagan God. So what do we notice in this scene? Well, Jesus has his questioners ask if they have one. In other words, you notice that Jesus isn't carrying any coins, any money in his pockets. He doesn't have money lining his pockets. But interesting, these guys do. They can pull out the coins uh, right there. They have one. They've got the money. They've got the very tribute coin that they're asking about, the one that they're hoping Jesus is going to say no to. Well, that'll put them on the defensive right away. But there's more to this business about image and likeness, and it's in Jesus' full answer to the question. What is Jesus' answer? As they're looking at this coin, he says, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. You know, more wisdom is packed into that statement, political wisdom even, than many of the political textbooks that we have around. Let's unpack then Jesus' statement here. The best way to understand this cryptic statement is that it's getting out of the trap that's set for Jesus. In other words, this isn't a simple yes or a simple no. Luke even tells us this. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in their trap. And it says they marveled at, their, at Jesus' answer. They marveled at it, amazed, astonished. It was shocking because Jesus' answer didn't really conform to either expected side. It wasn't just because, by the way, Jesus evaded the question. That is another very political thing to do is sort of sidestep a, a question if a political candidate is asked something. Oh, well, let me tell you about my other talking point. Jesus doesn't do that. He is answering the question, but he's answering the question without their loaded assumptions. He's going to tell them something true, something deeper than maybe even what than they were asking. There's a lot to misunderstand in these verses, so let's think about what these verses don't mean then. This is an astonishing statement. So it's not an astonishing statement if Jesus says, yep, pay your taxes. That's it. Let's move along. That's not astonishing. It's not an astonishing statement if Jesus is saying, you know, there's this sacred secular divide in God's world. And God only cares about certain things, kind of spiritual heavenly things. He could care less about, you know, the rest of life, earthly things, society, daily life, culture. That would not be an astonishing statement. Statement that's typical of the things that we often say, modern Christians who live today, Sunday only Christians. Oh, it's fine if you believe in God uh, as long as you leave that to Sunday. The rest of the week belongs to Caesar. God only gets one day. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that government has a kind of uncontested sphere that God will approve everything they do. That's not astonishing because it means that Jesus was never in danger of a trap to begin with. So how do I know that this isn't what Jesus is saying? Two things. 
first. Just think about those words again. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Beloved at first prayers, what belongs to God? Everything. Everything. Is there anything in this world that doesn't belong to him? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the psalmist says. The Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Go therefore. There's nothing outside of God's reign and his rule and his control. So whatever Jesus is saying, he's not saying that only a few things belong to God. But here's another thing, and it has to do with why Jesus asked to see this coin. Jesus asks about an image and a likeness or an inscription. What he's saying is this. If this has Caesar's image on it, if it's inscribed law on it, well, then give it back to him. Caesar stamped it. So give it back to him in taxes. And yes, just so I am clear, at one point today, do pay your taxes, beloved. That's where Caesar's image is inscribed. So Jesus says, give it back to him. But we need to reverse the question. Where's God's image inscribed? Where's his likeness to be found? Who bears that? What's well, us? It's people. See, the true king of the universe doesn't make coins because his image is on us. If that which is Caesar's image needs to be given to Caesar, well, beloved, that means whatever has God's image on it needs to be given to God, given back to him. What do we owe God? Do we owe God just a little coin, a little perfunctory tax? Do we owe him our money? True enough, we do. But the point here is that while Caesar has a kind of limited authority, Jesus is going beyond that and saying, God has all authority. Yes, give Caesar his due, which is some honor, but give God the due for his kingdom, for his rule. Jesus isn't bringing in a kingdom, in other words, that has a limited jurisdiction. Jesus himself is the perfectly stamped image of God, his full likeness, the brightness of the Father's glory, the true Son of God, the true high priest, that he's the one standing there. And his kingdom has no limitations, no ifs, ands, or buts. He is a king without coins. How could you have a king without coins? Well, because he owns everything. Everything belongs to him. I think what amazed Jesus' questioners is that they get this. See, Jesus is a kind of revolutionary, almost like the zealots, but he's not a zealot revolutionary. He's not fighting for a little small piece of land to get rid of the Romans. Jesus' kingdom is as wide as creation. It's summoning all people, all people made in the image of God, to give back to God that which is due him. Don't worry about Caesar's tax when there's a greater claim on your life. That's what Jesus is saying, beloved. That's what Jesus is telling us. There's an interesting play in this text I didn't mention earlier, but it's in that flattery part where they're flattering, uh, giving Jesus a flattery, and he says, uh, you show no partiality, teacher. Well, literally that phrase, you show no partiality, in Greek, is the phrase, you are not a respecter of faces. You don't regard people's faces. It's kind of an interesting phrase. What does that mean? It means that Jesus isn't afraid to offend. Uh, he's not going to say something and kind of wonder, oh, is, he, uh, you know, is that person looking sad? I don't want to make them sad. That's a kind of people-pleasing. But isn't it interesting that in this exchange then, 
Jesus has them show a coin with what on it? A face. Caesar's face. Ooh, that's an important face. But beloved, Jesus isn't a respecter of faces. Who's Caesar to Jesus? Just another man made in the image of God. See, Caesar is just another man, not God. A creature to reflect God, made in God's image. Even Caesar is stamped with the image of God. Caesar is the coin for God, not just Caesar's own coin. The word here is not just simply to give, by the way, it's to give back. Uh, in fact, there was a kind of a slogan at the time of Jesus' time uh, that said this, give back the Gentiles what they deserve. It's kind of like payback time, give it back to them. Well, the Jesus may be playing on that, but he's saying really what you need to do is give back to God everything God has given you. Yes, give back to Caesar uh, a certain amount of honor to be sure. This is part of living in God's world. But because we bear God's image and not the government's image, the government doesn't own us, we are to give back to God everything that belongs to him, our very life, our very self. We have not... We don't have anything that we haven't received. Paul says that to the Corinthians. What do you have that you haven't received? Everything you have is given by God, the one who gives all good gifts. So if we give ourselves to God and give back to Caesar what Caesar has given, do you know what Jesus is doing? He's setting limits on submission to Caesar. See, God's realm of authority isn't separate from Caesar's. His authority, you can think of a Venn diagram, God's authority is the big circle. Caesar's authority is inside of the circle of God's authority. Because again, I'm not made in the image of Caesar. I'm made in the image of God. I give to God what belongs to God. And that includes giving to Caesar somebody who God himself has set up. Civil government is part of God's providential rule to have rulers over us and authorities over us. But when Caesar's demands don't match up to God's demands. Beloved, what do we do then? We give to God what belongs to God's. His rule is above Caesar's. That's why Christians have developed the whole idea of civil disobedience, that it can even be good for civil society if we don't follow its demands when it's calling us to go against the Lord God Almighty. Uh, Reformed thinker Francis Schaeffer uh, once said it very uh, very simply, if there's no possibility of disobeying Caesar, then government is God. And it's not. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. The people who tried to trap him would hand him over to the Romans. Not the coin that bears Caesar's image and that false title, son of God, high priest, but the true human being who really did bear God's image, truly. Beloved, what did the Jewish leaders do? They rendered to Caesar God himself. Because Jesus is the God-man, and they gave him up to Caesar. It's there in the wicked tenants as well. What happened to the wicked tenants? What were they not doing? They weren't giving tribute to God. And then their first question is, well, what about tribute to Caesar? And Jesus says, you don't get it, do you? This is all about God and what you give to God himself. And so they give over the true son of God, the true high priest, thinking, well, that'll solve our problems. We'll get this guy out of the way. 
But this was the true God-man rendering to God only that which God could have. The forgiveness of our sins, the payment of our death and our punishment given to God to make all the kingdoms of this world into the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He is the true pre-high priest, the true son of God. You know, all those tax rebellions in Israel never did anything. It's quite sad if you read about them. Thousands of people dying, and it didn't change. But what finally did change? Well, Christ really did transform the kingdoms of this world. The empire really did, later on, bow the knee to the true king, the true son of God, the true high priest, the true bringer of peace, not the Pax Romana, but the peace of God for us. I think what Jesus is really saying is, get your priorities straight. What's the ultimate thing? Rome isn't the ultimate problem. Sometimes politics and things going around us can be frustrating, can be oppressing, it can be deeply oppressing. But God is saying, find the ultimate problem and see the ultimate solution. If people are made right with God, then these other questions will sort themselves out. They'll fall into place, trusting the Lord Jesus as our King. Brothers and sisters of First Presbyterian, this is where Jesus, we are called to worship and to follow this one. He is our ultimate allegiance and authority. And the irony again is that if we give God his proper place, we don't lose our care for our neighbors and our society. We can put government in its proper place and we can seek to change it. We can seek to uphold it. We can seek for our neighbors to, for their good. But we look ultimately to our king from heaven. Let's put all of this in its proper place. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but beloved, render to God what is God's. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our ever-living Father, we give you thanks for your word and for how you teach us through it. We praise you, O God, for your Son, the true Lord, the true King, the true Son of God and High Priest who went through all of these things for our sakes. Help us to live out this passage, O God, as we raise our eyes to heaven where he is on the throne. And while we also do our duty and carry out our responsibilities here and now, cause us how to know how to render to Christ what is his, even as we seek to fulfill our responsibilities and our obligations on earth. Help us, O God, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.